I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul, in his day, was witnessing from his perspective, and really from a biblical perspective from the Old Testament, Paul was witnessing a reversal of the way that things should have gone, at least according to expectation. And that reversal was this. Many, many Gentiles were believing and embracing the gospel. Many, many Jews were not. And from the standpoint of salvation history, that seems like a reversal. When you consider all of the blessings that God had given to the descendants of Abraham, he chose them. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac and Jacob. He chose all of the 12 sons of Jacob. He promised them many things. He, pr- he gave them the covenants. He supplied them with his holy and righteous law on Mount Sinai. All of these privileges and blessings. And, then, and Paul adds on top of that, out of these people, these, these Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, came the Savior of the world. The Messiah. So when you think about it from that perspective, you would think that of all the people of the world that would embrace their Messiah and receive Jesus as their Savior, it should have been the Jewish people. But they did not. By and large, they rejected him. Certainly there were Jewish people who were believers in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Paul is an example of one. But by and large, many, many Jewish people were rejecting Jesus. We see it in Jesus' own day, the rejection that Jesus received from the Pharisees, and the chief priests, the religious leaders. Many in Jesus' day rejected him and refused to believe. In Paul, we see that wherever he went, he would go from city to city. And almost without fail, the primary opposition that he faced in preaching the gospel was from the Jewish community in those cities. They rejected the gospel. And so it was, a, it was a reversal. And so in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with that reversal of salvation history. And he's, he's seeking to address that question. Why is it that many, many Jewish people who have been given all of these blessings, why are they not embracing Jesus as their savior and so receiving eternal life? In Romans 9, Paul addresses it more from the divine side. And looking at it from the standpoint of God's inscrutable secret will, if you will. That from the standpoint of God's sovereignty, that really this is not unexpected. And this is not a surprise to God at all. In fact, this majority of unbelief in the Jews is actually a part of God's plan, he says in Romans 9 so as to work out his greater purposes in salvation history, which is to bring in a great inclusion of the Gentiles. And so from the divine side, Paul is saying that what is happening is really a part of God's sovereign will. And in in Romans chapter 9, Paul magnifies the sovereignty of God. Paul magnifies the, the sovereign electing purpose of God. Paul magnifies the right of God as creator to do what he wills with his creation. Paul magnifies the attributes of God's character to condemn 
and to show wrath to those who are rebellious sinners. But also God's gracious character to show grace and mercy to those who do not deserve it. And so Romans 9 was looking at it more from the divine perspective. But whatever we affirm about election, about the sovereignty of God in Romans 9, we must also affirm what the Bible affirms, and that is a refusal to believe is a refusal to believe. And the people who refuse to believe will be held accountable and responsible for that refusal to believe. And that's where he begins in chapter 9, verse 30, and on now into chapter 10, to look at it more from the standpoint of the human side, of Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And so however we affirm the sovereignty of God, we must also at the same time affirm fully the accountability of every person to respond to the gospel. And when presented with the truths of the gospel, they have a responsibility and accountability to respond to that gospel. And if they refuse to believe that gospel, then they will be held accountable eternally for that refusal. And so Paul is looking at it from that perspective now, from the standpoint of Israel and their disobedience to the gospel, their refusal to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And so in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul further addresses that issue, and he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come today and we desire to know your word. We come desiring to know the truth that you have revealed to us in these words. And so, Lord, may we come humbly, may we come openly. May your spirit reveal the importance of these words and how that we might apply them to our lives. Lord, may we come away from this time in your word with a greater understanding of the gospel, with a greater appreciation for what you have done for us by grace. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The first thing that Paul reveals to us in this passage, and he reveals this to us in verse 1, is that our passion for the gospel must include a compassion for lost souls. Our passion for the gospel must include a compassion for lost souls. And I think that's helpful to remember, especially in all that we've been talking about in Romans 9, in dealing with the kind of, if you will, the behind the curtains view of what takes place from the perspective of God and the way that he works in the world, the way that he's accomplishing his electing purpose, we must, in our pursuit, in our passion for the truth of the gospel, never forget that there are lost souls that need to be saved. John Murray, in his commentary, he puts it this way. He says, we violate the order of human thought 
and trespass the boundary between God's prerogative and man's when the truth of God's sovereign counsel constrains despair or abandonment of concern for the eternal interests of men. So if our, in our passion for a knowledge of the gospel, including the aspects of the gospel in which God's sovereignty are in view, we must never allow that passion for the gospel and that pursuit of knowledge to stand in the way of a heart for lost souls. And I've seen that at times, that sometimes when we get deep into theology and we really want to know how what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and salvation, that sometimes it can become more of an academic pursuit. And looking at just truths for the sake of knowing truths. But the Apostle Paul will not allow us to stand in that position, to pursue the gospel from that standpoint. Because he says, brothers and sisters, a familial term, a a term of love, of relationship. He says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul understands the sovereignty of God. He is the one who just taught us it. He is the one who just revealed the electing purpose of God. And it is this same Paul who says, my desire... My unrelenting prayer is that these Israelite people would be saved. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 9? He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. The people of Israel. So at the beginning of chapter 9, he's saying, my heart is breaking for these people, for their unbelief, because he knows that if they persist in unbelief, they will be eternally lost. And his heart is breaking. And he says, if it were possible, I could put myself in their place and become accursed for them, then I would do it. But it's not possible. Paul cannot take their curse. There's only one who can take their curse, and he has already taken the curse. That is Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Paul is an insufficient substitute for the Israelite people or for any people. Jesus is the only substitute. And so Paul knows he can't take their place, but his heart is broken for them and he desires their salvation. Now we see that same heart again in chapter chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, this is my prayer. This is the concern of my heart. It It goes that deep to my soul that I desire for these people to be saved. And my my question for us is this. And this is kind of a soul-searching question. Do we have this kind of a heart for lost souls? Do we have a desire that emanates from the deepest part of our heart for people to be saved? Do we pray earnestly? And repeatedly continuing to knock on the door that people may be saved. Our passion for the gospel must never get in the way of a compassion for lost souls. And so my prayer is that God would awaken 
perhaps reawaken within us a zeal for lost souls. And that we would, with, with all fervor and with all of our energy, as Paul did, to preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel and to share the gospel with the lost, desiring and praying for their salvation. So our passion for the gospel must include a compassion for lost souls. Paul also reveals to us in this passage that our pursuit of God cannot be based on sincerity alone, or we might say zeal alone. It must be accompanied by truth. Our pursuit of God cannot be based on sincerity or zeal alone. It must be accompanied by truth. Recently in our uh, college Sunday school class that we had this summer, the book that we were using, How to Stay Christian in College, it was written by a professor. He teaches at the University of Texas. And so he has a lot of experience in encountering lost people and all the objections and the, the skeptics skepticism and all that, that that takes place in the modern university setting. And so in one of the chapters, he was addressing the myths that most that a lot of people believe in, in our world, in our culture today. And one of the myths that our culture currently believes is this, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And that's a very postmodern mindset, isn't it? And it it fits very well in our current cultural climate. Whether it be in the university campus or on um, social media or in movies and television, that's the cultural climate in which we live. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what path you choose to take. It doesn't matter what religion you follow. It doesn't matter what God you worship. Just be sincere in your beliefs. Just be genuine. Be have a zeal, have a have a, a desire to really pursue what you're pursuing. And it doesn't matter what that is. Paul says in verse 2 that he says about the Jewish people, I can testify about them. He knows them. In fact, he in his own personal testimony could say this of himself at one point in the past. That he had a zeal for God. But it was not a zeal accompanied by right gospel knowledge. And what Paul is saying in verse 2 is that for the Jewish people, for me, Paul, in my past condition, zeal was not sufficient. Zeal was not sufficient. The truth, the knowledge of Christ in the gospel had to be understood, awakened within me. And without that knowledge of the gospel, zeal, or in our modern terms, we might say sincerity, is not going to cut it. And so I would affirm from the scriptures that sincerity is not the ultimate virtue. Sincerity or zeal is not the ultimate virtue because you have to be pursuing the right thing. You can sincerely believe something that is tragically false, can't you? as an example, there is, there is a, a growing movement that I assume that they're sincere, but there is a growing movement of people who are affirming that the world is flat. 
Now, that was settled a long time ago, and we have abundant scientific evidence. We have satellites going around the earth right now. We have abundant scientific evidence that says, no, the world is round. We've settled that a long time ago. But there are people who are claiming, no, the earth is really flat. And they may be fully sincere in that belief, but they're tragically wrong, right? What if, what if someone said, I, I really sincerely believe, I really think from the deepest depths of my heart that it's okay to murder people? That sincerity counts for nothing, does it? Because that belief, that is sincerely wrong. And so having something, holding to a truth or an ideal or a philosophy sincerely is not the ultimate objective. And you can be sincerely and with all good heartedness and with all, all zeal and all 100% of, of all of you headed down the wrong path and headed toward eternal damnation. Paul says the Jewish people had a zeal, but it was without knowledge. And so they had a fundamental lack in their understanding of how they were to relate to God. And he reveals that misunderstanding in verse 3. They did not know the righteousness of God, and they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So the third thing that Paul reveals to us is that our position as justified before God cannot be attained by our own good works. It can only be granted on the basis of the righteousness of God. That was their misunderstanding. They had a lot of zeal, but they were misinformed. They had wrong knowledge. And their wrong knowledge was they thought that they could establish their own righteousness, their own righteous standing on the basis of their obedience to the law of Moses. And Paul says they were wrong in that. And because they pursued that means of, a, of achieving their position before God, they did not submit to the righteousness of God and therefore missed the righteousness of God. What does Paul mean by this? He says in verse 3, they did not know the righteousness of God. What does he mean by that? Surely he does not mean that the Jews did not understand that God was a righteous God. That's not what he means. Surely he doesn't mean that the Jews did not have any conception, understanding of what right and wrong meant from God's point of view. He doesn't mean that the Jews didn't understand what the word righteousness meant. What is he saying then when it says they did not know the righteousness of God? Well, it goes back to what we were saying last time at the end of chapter 9 in the way that Paul is using righteousness here. Paul is using righteousness not in the sense of moral improvement. Paul is using righteousness in the sense of right standing before God. Justification. In other words, they did not know the righteousness of God in that sense. They did not know, did not comprehend, did not understand that the way to be justified before God was a gift from God. 
And so because they did not understand that, that the means to be justified before God was his righteousness by faith, so they did not understand that. So therefore they pursued righteousness in the wrong way. They pursued it through self-performance. They pursued it through their attempt to obey the law. As he says back in chapter 9, verse 31, they pursued the law as the way of righteousness. But they have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So Paul is saying they had a lot of zeal, but they didn't understand that the way to be made right with God was not on the basis of good works. It was on the basis of faith, receiving as a gift the righteousness of God. So our position as justified before God cannot be attained by our own good works. It can only be granted on the basis of the righteousness of God through faith. Let me put what Paul is saying in verse 3 very, very simply, and that is this. You can't earn your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Apparently there were a great number of Jews in Paul's day who thought that the means to be included in God's forgiveness and in God's kingdom was to come under the law and obey it. But the problem is, is that no one, Paul has said back in Romans chapter 4, no one, no flesh, no human flesh is justified by the works of the law. We can't. It's impossible. In order to be justified by the works of the law, what would you have to do? You would have to do it perfectly. You would have to always, with all of your heart, soul, and mind, with never any false motives, with never any false ambitions, worship God and God alone with all your heart, soul, and mind. You would have to never, your entire life, ever use the name of God in an unworthy way. You would have to never, ever, whether in deed or in thought, never commit adultery. Never lust. You'd never, entire life, never take something that did not belong to you. And there was one man that Jesus talked to who said, I've done all those things. And then Jesus says, okay, so go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. And he said, I can't do that. And he walked away. Sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of wealth. He was rich. And he was guilty of breaking the last command, which is to not covet. And so there's never any way possible for us to obey fully the law of God. So we can't earn it. Because if you were to try to earn it, you have to do it perfectly. And none of us can. So what did God do therefore then? God sent Jesus as the full, perfect, righteous servant of God. And he fully obeyed the law. And he fully obeyed it and accomplished it on behalf of every single one of his people. And then he laid down his life as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation of the wrath of God, and he atoned for our sins. And so that Paul says, through faith in him now, God can be justified in justifying the ungodly. And he justifies sinners through 
the righteousness of Christ. And it's given as a gift, received by faith. It is not earned. You cannot attain it. Lastly, Paul teaches us in this passage that our perception of the law of God must include an understanding of its proper goal, which is Christ. Our perception of the law of God must include an understanding of its proper goal, which is Christ. Here's here's the place where the Jewish people stumbled, Paul is saying in verse number four. Christ is the culmination of the law. The Jewish people stumbled in that they had the law, and the law was good, right? Paul has affirmed that the law is good. It has to be good because it comes from God, who is the perfect lawgiver. And so the law is good, but the Jewish people misunderstood the role that the law was to play in their lives. And they misunderstood that the law was not a means of attaining a righteous standing before God. But that the law was actually a prophetic witness pointing forward to its goal, to its culmination, which is Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus actually came, therefore, in history, they completely missed the whole goal and purpose of all the law and the prophets and the writings. If you stand back and think about that, that's incredibly sad, isn't it? It's incredibly sad, disheartening, that all of these scriptures pointed to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, as the Savior. He says, all of the law and the prophets testify about me. And they missed it. They did not see it. The Jewish people missed it. They did not see that the law was intended to point forward to its culmination, which is Christ. And then Paul says that the law, Christ, is the culmination of the law. He is its goal. So that, there's a purpose statement. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So, in other words, here's where we stand now, is what Paul is saying. Here's where we stand now. The law's purpose was never to justify people. The law's purpose was to reveal our sin and point to a Savior. And now the Savior has come, and the only way of achieving righteousness before God is through faith, not through performance. And in the way that we view the law, in our perception of the law, in our perception of the Old Testament, we must see Jesus as its culmination point. We must see Jesus as the end goal of the law. And so now that we stand on this side of Calvary, and we are now believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this side of the cross, when we look back at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the Word of God. 
It is the word of God. It is the divine revelation of God. And it teaches us many, many things about how that we relate to God and, and things in which God approves of and disapproves of. But we must view it all through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because he is its telos, its culmination point. With the end result being now that the means to achieving righteousness before God is not through performing it. It's not through doing it at all. But it's through receiving it by faith. And so my, my appeal to you this morning is this. Do not base your standing before God on what you do. Do not base your standing before God on what you do. Base your standing before God on what Christ has done. And trust, fully rely, place your life on Him and Him alone for your salvation. And if you are a believer in Christ, then may we, with Paul, have a heart, have a desire for other people to experience that salvation. Let's have a zeal, but let it be a zeal with truth and let it be a zeal with a heart for the salvation of lost souls. And praise be to God that we cannot, that we cannot attain our own righteousness, but that he has gifted it to us through, the, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so my appeal is believe in him, trust in him, And then, with all compassion and heart and love, seek to tell other people about this Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we acknowledge your abounding grace. Lord, you have been so good in saving sinners, in redeeming sinners, rebels knowing that we were imperfect and that we were incapable of saving ourselves through our own good works that you and your grace accomplished our redemption and our salvation through the perfect righteousness of Christ and through his atoning death on the cross of Calvary Father if there's one here today whose eyes are still set on themselves, still focused on their deeds, their performance of good and bad, that, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see, to understand that it's only through faith in Christ that they might be saved. Give us a heart for the lost, Lord. Help us to to look at our neighbors and our coworkers, our family members, Help us to look at them with love and compassion and with a desire, Lord, to see their souls saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us a passion for that gospel, not only in our lives, but also in the lives of others. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.